in New York. Enjoy a big night out with the fabulous Beatles and the Supremes. Followed by Murray the K with the Bo Brummels, Patty and the Blue Bells, Cannibal and the Headhunters, and the Swingin' K Dancers. Saturday night at 8.30 on WOR-TV, Channel 9. Oh, yes, we're your cultural channel. Old Channel Rupee is right there. Two years behind. Now, I bring it up there big and loud. Yes, sir. Well, that was enough to cost me my job. Yes, sir. That's my baby. <laughs> no, sir. No, baby. Yes, sir. That's my baby now. Oh, by the way. I'm adjusting the controls here. Oh, by the way. Bring it up now. Inundate them with mediocrity. Oh, nothing the people like better than a good old security blanket of uh, nothingness. Bring it up. Careful now. Cannibal and the headhunters, is that right? I mean, let's not confuse headhunters with cannibals. They're two different crowds. It's not necessarily true that all headhunters are cannibals, right, Walt? We've worked with them for years. Yeah. All right, that's enough of that. That's enough. That's enough. But uh, I, I, um, I suppose, uh, of course, you know the idea of a cannibal and the idea of a headhunter. That's uh, I have worked for cannibals and I have worked for headhunters. Now there are two different kinds of creatures when you work for them. Now, uh, the cannibal type of boss is a boss that never fires you. He never fires you. He just slowly devours you, starting around your kneecap. And eventually, one day, you are totally assimilated into the vast digestive system of the corporate entity. Just like all fodder, you're digested and Little bits of you are thrown out, little bits of you are used, until eventually there you are, part and parcel of this fantastic thing called the image, the creation, this monster called us, here, we, W-O-R, or whatever it is you work for, you know. And, and now, now that's, that's cannibalism. Now, headhunterism is something else. And I have worked for the headhunters, too. Now, the headhunter, in a way, is, uh, is a little more healthy to work for. Uh, I'll never forget one of my favorite headhunters is a guy who, who is the axe man. Uh, of course, headhunting, of course, involves decapitation, let's face it. That does not necessarily follow in cannibalism. Uh, headhunterism is pure and simple trophy gathering. Now, that does not mean that the trophy is used for food stuff. You know, many a guy who goes out fishing for uh, landlocked salmon does not necessarily sit down to a big plate of landlocked salmon immediately after he's caught. No, he has it stuffed and hung on the wall. He is after trophies. Well, I one time worked for a guy, for those of you who are interested in, there's a certain look in the eye of a headhunter, <laughs> I'll tell you. And they're very valuable to industry. Very valuable. You know, it's not easy to find a guy who is a natural born. What is the expression that Harry Truman used? Uh, and, you know, and, and who revels in it and who enjoys it, who works in human misery the way other artists work in clay and marble, who, who, uh, who plays. You see, the whole point of, 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 uh, of true cannibalism is there has to be a sporting situation, a true, true headhunterism, excuse me, there has to be a sporting situation. 
nobody is going to put a trophy up on his wall, you know, if the fish jumps in your boat, you know, and, and demands to be taken home. This is not a trophy, you know. This is sort of a pathetic little pet that you've got here under your seat there. That's something else again. Well, I know, uh, for those of you who are, uh, who are in the biz out there, I, I, I know of one man, and he is not in New York, by the way, and he does not work at the major agencies, he does not work at the major networks, but he does work at one of the major radio stations in the business. And in fact, he is so famous that he is legendary even among guys who never were decapitated by him. Uh, <laughs> he is famous. Uh, there is a legend in the business that if you got a sign board and you just printed it up and you stood on the corner of 47th Madison, held it up, that you were trying to raise $10,000 uh, to go out and assassinate this guy. By nightfall, you would have not only filled your quota, but would be overflowing with money, and you would have already filled at least four or five special trains that would have been taken out, uh, you know, to, to, to go out and take care of this guy. Uh, <laughs> in, in other words, uh, all we need is, a, is an excuse. Now, who is this man? I will, uh, for those, this, that's a real in question for those of you who are fascinated by trivia. He has fired some of the most famous names in the world. I'll never forget the day he sat across the desk from Doris Day and told Doris Day that since she wanted a $10 raise, he was going to ease her out gently with a word of advice. Get out of the business, baby. You got no future. <laughs> And I was right there when she was sent down the chute to fame and stardom. Uh, and he's still out there. Now, you'd think this would discourage him. Oh, no, no, no. No, the one thing about a headhunter, that his, his hunger for heads only is increased as he deals with more as he goes along. And uh, this, uh, of course, this is a, this is a <laughs> part of our world. And uh, the headhunter, I, I find him kind of fun to work for. I'll never forget the... Uh, the best cannibal I ever worked for. You want to hear, hear a portrait of a guy? If, if I were to write a novel about this man, I've, I've always felt that if you ever write reality, people would not believe it. They just don't. They want little poetic innuendos. Uh, they want little uh, morals. You can't draw any moral from life. I've never been able to draw any morals from life. Have you? Really? You've learned a few lessons, but ten minutes after you've learned it, you get your foot stuck in the bear trap again, and you have learned another lesson. In other words, no lesson really works. <laughs> I mean, I'm never really in life now. Sure, you can learn how to do multiplication tables. That's not the kind of lesson that I... And I never even learned that very good. Well, uh, but nevertheless, you... <laughs> See what I'm saying? Mouse trapping them all over the place. But, but these little sneaky things which we think are lessons really often turn out to be giant traps. And not lessons at all. Now, I, I knew a guy in this business. Would you please, uh, would you please, oh, cut number two, the, 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 the second piece. Now, hold it there. Hold it, Larry, because this is, this is a perfect music for him. Now, this man sat, sat on top of the, 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 the corporate structure of this radio station that I worked in. But it was a giant radio. Hey, how come you don't have that queued up in there for crying out loud? Are you ready now? You just hold it in there. And, and it's, I want, I want the giant mysteries of life music. You've got it in there? Okay. Sisyphus rolling the rock up the enormous, all right? You got it? With the hill there? Okay. Camus? Huh? All right. Now, <laughs> oh, it's terrible to talk about Camus when you're working with, with a Jimmy Breslin man. I'll tell you. <laughs> whose, whose literary taste ends at Dorothy Kilgallen and Earl Wilson. But, 
All right, you want you want a picture of a man? I, I'm 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 this kid, see, and and I had just gotten out of out of the army, and I'd been fooling around at college, you know, and walking around wearing my field jacket on a campus, and the big bitch, you know, with the with the boots, the combat boots, and, and pretending like, oh boy, have I been through hell? How can I stand geography too after that? Well, I've been there where it really happens, you know, walking around playing this bit big. I wonder how many, how many, how many, uh, all right, speaking of trivia, I'm going to ask you one question of trivia, you know, and, and I should have saved this for the Saturday night show at the limelight. How many of you can tell me, I will award the Brass Pig Leggy with bronze oak leaf palm, if you can tell me the name of the comic strip that was the most popular comic strip during World War II among G.I.s and never appeared in a, a, as far as I know, in any other public print other than in service, service publications. And it was done by one of the most famous cartoonists in America. What was the name of that cartoon strip? And it was not Bill Malden's. Uh, that was not a cartoon strip. Bill Malden did editorial little single panels. This was a cartoon strip with running characters. And it was not Sad Sack, for those of you who are immediately going to call. What was the name of that fantastic cartoon? It was one of the <laughs> it was one of the most provocative cartoons I ever saw in my life. He had all kinds of wild stuff running along in it, and uh, and from that day on, this guy has always been had a little very special thing in millions of guys' minds. They always wait for one day in his his cartoon strip, which is very big now, for him to bust loose and really let go with some of the stuff that his character could say that we knew he once did say <laughs> in cartoon strips. Now, does anyone know that? You don't know that. No? You're wrong. And I will also award you a subsidiary bronze figlegi with oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of the character that was the important character in that strip. And I'll give you a clue. It was a woman. Believe it or not, in the in a, in a service publication, it was not a soldier, it was not a G.I. Joe, that old canard. What was the name of the strip? Now, uh, why I remember this, I don't know. Just uh, the day I'm thinking about it, and that's the end of it. But this, uh, I, I'm, I'm out of the Army, see, and all that stuff is still floating around in your head. And uh, you've got all these, there's a peculiar kind of, of uh, the word is not irreverence, the word is something else. And that we will use that later on in the exam for those of you who are old enough to understand that kind of thing and to be able to accept it and take it. So many people think life itself, you know, is in bad taste. Uh, it is, I suppose, to large numbers of people. <laughs> However, uh, I'm walking around the campus, and I'm going to ask you one other question about that world. What was the name of the largest unofficial club that resulted from World War II? And it had as, as its name uh, two numbers. It referred to a government edict, like, say, the Form 20 Club <laughs> or, the, or the Form 32 Club or uh, something like that. Well, you won't get this one. There was a great outfit called the 5220 Club. You know what the 5220 Club was? Well, the 5220 Club was that they, they said that if you were in the Army a certain length of time and you had so much service, see, when you got out, you were entitled to 52 weeks off. You got $20 a week for 52 weeks. And it was supposed to rehabilitate you until you, <laughs> until you got back uh, in, in, the, in the ordinary rut, you know, until <laughs> you could get back in the slot or whatever it is, what crumminess. Can you imagine a guy that had been a bum, 
before the army, and it, it took him at least a year to get reoriented to being a bum. Uh, it took him a year to 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 to, to settle down <laughs> into his proper niche in the proper doorway on Sixth Avenue. Well, the 5220 Club was one of the greatest things that ever happened to millions of guys. And they're walking around the campus, you see, all of them. Uh, and they're getting the $20 a week. And everyone was trying to try to get... This is something, a part of, of the war you never hear about, is the guys that are going back to the campuses, you know. And everybody was trying to get into courses where they would get a lot of equipment. The equipment was, was uh, you know, nothing made you matter than to sign up for a course, and there were no books involved, which, by the way, were provided free by the government. Uh, you know, or you had to go to the library and take out a library. Well, what the heck is this? So I remember specifically enrolling in a course where I knew that to do the course, I had to have this giant, highly complex, completely, uh, uh, completely technical slide rule. It cost like maybe $48 for the slide rule. I enrolled in that course for that one, for that one purpose. <laughs> and, and, and I got in the course, and sure enough, they issued me the slide rule, and ten minutes later, my ears are buzzing. I'm in this course, you know, you never really quite thought that you would actually be in the course, and sure enough, I'm sitting there working this log, log, desitrig, multiplex rule, and uh, I, I enrolled in that course for that purpose. There was another one, that, that, that you enrolled in another course, and if you enrolled in this course, you were given a complete set of mechanical <laughs> drawing tools. <laughs> and, and everybody's walking around trying to figure out, and, and it was so sad, you see these instructors, and they thought that their courses were suddenly getting popular. They thought that at long last, guys would beginning to realize the value of this crud that you were learning, whereas actually everybody wanted to get this $297 set of mechanical drawing. Instantly after they got out of the course, they would struggle through it for three months, get a D minus, and then immediately sell the, 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 the set of drawing tools. <laughs> so, so I'm a member of the 5220 Clemson, and I'm walking around, and you had to wear your field jacket. You just had it. It was part of the uniform. You had to wear your field jacket. And you ha and many a guy had a terrible time, including me. I had to work on a sad look around my eyes. Because, yeah, oh yes, you had to look like you had just been through hell, you know. And you'd sit there. And, and I'll never forget sitting in, in the middle of the second week in an ethics class. And I'm practicing my sad look. Not really a sad look. It's a kind of a... Well, it wasn't really sad. It's more of a William Holden worldly look of a guy who's been shot at, you know, and a guy who who no longer has any illusions in life. It's a kind of uh, Jean Gabin look, you know. And, uh, and I'm sitting there sitting there looking up at this guy, and he's up there talking about platonic philosophy or ethic. He's talking about something like uh, maybe the, the Socratic ideal. And I'm sitting there, my eyes are starting to droop, and I'm working on this thing. Because it was fantastic with chicks. Oh, boy, I'll tell you, it was the greatest gambit ever invented. Uh, and, and you'd sit on a bench. I'll never forget, you'd sit on a bench, you see, after you've, you're just... Uh, you want to hear about some of those little techniques? The guys would sit on a bench, see, and all the four Fs are going by, see. <laughs> and all, all the freshmen are going by. And you would sit there, and you would, you, you would put your leg out, see, so it's just a little bit stiff. So you look like you're protecting an old wound, you know, and you sit there... And, and you'd have your field jacket huddled up around you, and you've got next to you, you've got your log, log, desitrig, multiplex rule, and you also have three or four worn volumes of, of uh, oh, uh, Schopenhauer or something you got along with you, you see. And you sit there, and you look off into the middle distance with the wind blowing your hair. And sure enough, within ten minutes, a chick would come by, and she would sit down at the other end of this stone bench at the old quad. 
And you see, this is like you're getting a nibble on the bait. You know, it's like you're fishing. It's very exciting. And you'd sit there and you'd wait and you'd look off. And then you would take your hand and you would rub your eye a little bit. As though an old pain, just a slight, an old pain, but one which you're trying to outlive and you don't want to remember it, is nagging way down in the bottom of your consciousness. You know, you look like that. And then she, you can see out of the corner of your eye that she is giving you the eyeball. You know, she's heard about these guys. She's seen newsreels of guys with big helmets, you know. And she's seen these guys crawling up the beach at Anzio and all that. And she's looking you out of the corner of your eye. And then you, you throw your final ploy. It is a, a deep, heartfelt, subtly contrived sigh that is a combination of tiredness, passion... And just a little touch of worldly, uh, oh, you know, what is the use? Existentialism, perhaps, if you prefer it. You go, hmm. You know, and you look out and say, what am I wasting my life? Why did I not go the way of all my fallen comrades? Why am I reduced to this human rubble to have to sit here and watch this, look at this? And you kind of look off in the distance where you see this big green statue was standing there against the horizon, you know, of, of an old president of the university, some old clutch, you know. And you look off there and um, you give a cynical look. And suddenly she was speaking of cynicism. This is WORAM and FM, New York. And, and the, the next move is, you know, she clears her throat and... She clears her throat. No, no, that's it. Cut one, Larry. That's right. She clears her throat and... The avalanche is starting downhill. Downhill, like that great, thunderous, enormous collection of rock, effluvia, and kitchen mitten. All of the evolution of mankind itself is contained in this one brief moment. You are making contact with the other half of the species for one purpose. Got it there, Chad. There you go. Well, it's exciting, isn't it? Don't you like that mood music like that behind your wife? Well, uh, she, <laughs> uh, she, she, she is nudging up to you now, see? And her opening line always went something like this. Uh, something just, usually it was something very, very innocent, like this. She would say, didn't I see you yesterday in the library? And you turn and you say this, possibly. And she'll say, possibly, were you in the library yesterday? And then you say, I don't remember. How about that for worldly decadence? Each day I live as it comes. Each moment I exist isn't live and here. Yesterdays have all gone and disappeared forever. Listen, I don't know. I don't know. I might have been in the library yesterday. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess you might have seen me there. And then she says, it must have been hell. Cut two, please. Cut two. And you say, oh, it's life just life life cannot be hell nor can it be heaven it's life that's all some live <laughs> some die <laughs> and it is difficult to know which are the fortunate 
Would you like to go down to the sweet shop, baby? <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about this. <laughs> and then you can see those great pools, those great azure pools melting. And she realizes she's here with one of those who have seen that dark inner circle of Dante's Inferno firsthand. And he is prepared to discuss it. Reticently, of course. Heroically. But, well, who knows who the fortunate are. <laughs> oh, wow. 20 minutes later, you're sitting there. And by the way, you have ordered for her a double hot fudge sundae for children, of course. And you're toying with a Coke. And so, you know, this is not what you ordinarily drink. But... After all, I'm with children. Do as the children do. And you sit there and she says, ultimately, of course, she will say, where were you? And you say, where, honey, is anyone? Does it matter, really, ultimately, where we were? Does it ultimately matter? Does it really? And she looks at you in a long, smoldering look. And you know doggone well where you're going to be in about three hours. Look at that. Oh, oh, fantastic. <laughs> and of course, you, the, the one thing, you know, that, that you got to remember, keep that beside that. Like, we're going to need that. It's a very romantic thing here we're doing. Uh, one of the things uh, was, was jockeying for field jackets. Now, it is not so good, you know, to walk around the campus with a field jacket where you can clearly see that the PFC stripes have been taken off. So, uh, <laughs> I knew guys who, 20 minutes after they got out of the Army, rushed down to the Army surplus store, bought themselves a new field jacket, and had major's leaves put on the top there, and ran it through the laundrette about 45 times enough, you know, so that, so that the patch would uh, kind of uh, fade out all around. And then take the major's leaves off, and for there, never and ever, you don't have to say what you were, ever. Never. You just sit there, you know, and drink your coke. And she says, it must have been hell having so much responsibility. And you say, hmm, well, some have to lead. Others must follow. And she can just see the little outlines, and she can't tell whether it's a lieutenant colonel's outlines or whether it's a major, or even possibly a brigadier general, you know, possibly. And they never quite come out and say, well, where are you? You know, you just... And, and if they do, you see, there's all kinds of little ploys. They may say, uh, I don't want to be personal, but... Uh, what rank did you hold? Some of them do say that, you know. Some gauche people will come right out and say a thing like that. And you say, well, I guess it really doesn't matter. It's all over now. I don't want to talk about it. And you just turn a little bit so the light shines on where your leaves were up there, see? And you say, look, you know, I'm just an ordinary Joe now. I'm just an ordinary guy. I'm just like anybody else. You see that dishwasher back there? No better than me. I'm no better than him now. Of course, what you don't tell me is you spent the last nine years washing dishes for a mess kit repair battalion. I know better than he is now. <laughs> 
And by that time, nobody's going to pursue the question. So, well, come on, Jack, what were you? You know, you don't, you, you never quite say it. <laughs> and then, then of course, uh, you, you must lard your expression. You have to lard your language always. You have to say, you know, at one point, you look around the old Coke joint, you know, and you look around, and um, you say, hey, Mac! And you holler out like that, see, at the waiter, hey, Mac! Put your hand over your mouth and say, I almost said something awful. Just terrible. It's awfully difficult to get used to civilian life. And I'll tell you, by that time, there's just no problem after that. After that, you know, you just you play your cards right. And you reel in a little line, let out a little line. The, you keep the star drag going a little bit there, you know, and play it with a tip back and forth. You know, just, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like playing a landlocked salmon with a two-and-a-half-pound nylon line. It's not easy, but it can be done, you know. And you play it back and forth until eventually you notice that there's just... The wiggling has gotten slighter and slighter. Those long rushes under the lily pads have gotten shorter and shorter. And then you reach down under the old boat seat and you take out the landing net. After that, well, it's just the frying pan and the skillet, maybe a little bacon grease. After that, <laughs> oh, it was hell over there. Friends. <laughs> somebody, somebody called in. Some guy remembered. Only one guy remembered the name of that that great uh, that great two guys called in and remember the name of that great cartoon. And we will hold you there for a second. Before we go any further, we have a note here. If you're looking for beautiful China, bring me that beautiful China music. You just played it great there. Romantic type people. If you're looking for beautiful china, crystal, and every leading brand of sterling, fantastic, handsome, stainless steel, pewter, or imported gift wares. I'll never forget it when I was a kid. I was so embarrassed to say pewter. I always thought it, you know, just sounded bad. I don't know. The place to look is Orenstein's, 213 Canal Street. Orenstein's offers an enormous selection at every price range, and the savings in this magnificent collection are very substantial. Bring it up there a little bit then. At Orenstein's, you can buy a place setting of luxurious Wallace Sterling for as little as $19.95. For over 1,235 years, Wallace has excelled in fine design and craftsmanship. They began their work with the finest battle axes made of their day. While ordinary patterns of silver, flatware, carry their design only on the front, Wallace designs are solid sterling, sculptured on the back, on the sides as well, all the way around. Come on, give me some dramatic music. That's Orenstein's. You can save at 213 Canal Street. Gee, that was a great commercial. <laughs> you know, uh, that's that's funny. Speaking of... of, of uh, what did I do with that thing? I got a great bit here. Hey, 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 Larry in there. Will you, uh, will you please set up my romantic music here? Please. Oh, no, not yet. Don't play it. No, no. Don't, don't ever... Don't ever... Uh, don't ever tip your hand, Jack. Play it cool. You know, uh, I was going to do... I'm going to put this off. I'm going to put it off for a specific reason. I am reading a book right now. You know, I don't talk much about books. But I am reading a book. Not that I don't read books. But I'm not in the business of plugging books. But I'm reading a book that I'm enjoying tremendously right now. It's almost the reverse of the New York angst kind of fiction, which has become uh, almost the standard of fiction in our time. And it's about a chain gang. 
And uh, but it's it's very different from what you think a chain gang novel would be about. You know, most people think, gee, rotten society out there. Look what you've done to me. All this rotten, decadent world out there. No, these are guys that are on a chain gang and know why they're on a chain gang. Because they're rotten. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they really are. And they recognize that fact. And, and the thing about the chain gang reading this, uh, I, I was reminded of something, reminded of an incident. How many of you, and I'm not going to tell this story tonight, uh, and, and for good reason, uh, but I will tell it, perhaps down at the limelight. How many of you have ever found yourself working on a task so immense, so unending, so scuddy, under such fantastically incredible rotten conditions that your mind went out to lunch and just stayed out to lunch permanently? How many of you know the feeling of being a slave? No, no, I'm serious. I mean, being a slave. Uh, everyone thinks he does. Yeah, everyone says, I've worked hard, and I know what that is. But a slave, a genuine slave, can't quit. <laughs> now, that's the difference between between having a rotten office job, where, where Harvey keeps calling up and, and keeps you on the ball all day long and turning out 17,000 pounds of work when you should only turn out 4.5 pounds. That's not slavery, because you can always quit, you know. But I'm talking about the kind of situation where you find yourself confronted with a job you can't believe. And so you begin to work at it, and it's even worse than you thought. And you work and work and work, and it gets worse as you go. Until finally, you, you just say, I can't, it's impossible, they can't expect me to do this. And they stand back of you and look at you with cold eyes, and you better do it. There ain't no turning back. That's a fascinating experience. Well, I one time had this experience happen to me. Where, where uh, I was under, no, seriously, where I was under, uh, under a, a condition of practically total slavery. Now, I don't know anything that is as much like a chain gang, after having read about chain gangs, as certain aspects of the army. And now, now, you can't just, you know, when you're in a chain gang, you just can't pull up stakes and say, gee, this is a rotten job, I quit, come on, Mac, don't give me that jazz. Well, there are certain times in the army when you can't do that. It has nothing to do with combat, nothing to do with that kind of stuff. Where somebody, where, where somehow by a series of ridiculous twists of fate, you find yourself confronted with something where your, your whole, you, all of us have done dull, rotten work. You know what I mean. Where, where you've got to clean out the basement, you know, that kind of jazz. Uh, where, where you've got to do something that, oh, you know, oh, gee whiz, wow. Where, 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 where your old man says you've got to clean out the garage Saturday or else, you know, that kind of thing. Or you've got to clean up your room or else. Or, or you've got you've to mow the lawn or else and all that stuff. Well, now, if you take all that stuff together and multiply it by 20 million, lower the temperature to, say, 15 or 20 below zero, add a 150-mile-an-hour gale, and then, then uh, lard it over totally with about 17 guys who love to see other guys suffer, and you've got yourself the kind of situation that I'm talking about. A galley slave. Uh, you know, you're sitting there and you're rowing and you just can't believe it. Uh, how do you think a galley slave feels sitting down there with this oar in his, you know, in his face and he's just pulling it? That's all the oar all day long. And he hears the captains and all of them up, up there hollering, you know, and they're, they're having a battle or they're involved in, in, in discovering the new world or some, you know, thing. And all he's doing is rowing, you know, just rowing. And once in a while a guy goes past and belts him on the back with a whip. You know, get pow, pow, and he gets one across the ear and they have just discovered the new world. 
And so then 20 minutes later, the captain turns around and he rows back all the way to Italy, you know. Uh, well, well, you know, it's, it's, it, you can't believe how it feels. It's, it's really a rotten feeling. Well, well uh, do you want me to tell a story of an incident like that? It's so painful. Even to this day, I, 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 I get it, it kind of makes me feel rotten just to think about it. But I might as well tell you about it. Let me tell you about it now, tonight. I guess I have enough time to do that. Uh, well, all right, all right. Uh, give, give me my Camus. Now you know this is this is why I guess we're we're bringing Camus into this thing. <laughs> Camus, Camus and his myth of Sisyphus uh, wrote a, a a mythological treatment of the rock that mankind literally has been pushing up an endless mountain since all time. You know, and every time he gets this rock to a certain point, it slides back. He he pushes it up three feet and it slides back four. And then he, he turns around and he hollers to the crowd, All right, follow me! Now let's go! The trouble is none of you guys are pushing! And they start pushing up again, and they get it moving, you see. It gets up, it gets it looks like it's going to make it, and then inevitably, somebody turns around and says, Hey, i got a scratch, boss! Holy smokes! Oh, oh! And then it down it goes. And they start all over again. Well, this is mankind. It's a fact, see. Well, uh, it's very hard for people who have not been under a condition of servitude of one kind or another to understand this concept. Uh, I have a lot of friends of mine who, who are ex-lieutenant uh, colonels and ex-even uh, ex, uh, second lieutenants who do not know, <laughs> who do not really know. You know, they see those, those, those huddled, green-clad, fatigue-clad figures out there on that field, huddled against the screaming wind, and that's just called the detail. Well, <laughs> I was one of the detail. And, and you want to hear about that fantastic myth of Sisyphus? Well, all right, I'll tell you. I have been put, I have been put with, with about uh, 500 other guys. I've been, we've, been, we've been put into this camp, which was a temporary camp. And it was right over here in Jersey, by the way, a camp uh, which was, if you can imagine, the slum to Fort Monmouth. This camp was the slum to Fort Monmouth. Uh, the, the, Monmouth was a very official camp, you know. It still is. It's a genuine army post that has barracks and has civilized people. And it's got clubs and it's got service clubs and it's got PXs. Well, of course, like all human habitations, there had to be a second-class area, a genuine slum. No matter, I think slums are endemic to mankind. I mean, we got to have them. Uh, why? I don't know, but I think it's there. Well, I could, you know, go on with the theories about this, but you know that they, that as long as they have, have found human habitation, there has been the equivalent of slums. It's weird. I mean, it really is weird. You know, you think of Pompeii. Well, this was thousands of years ago. There was a slum around Pompeii. <laughs> there were guys sitting around there, you know, who were, who were living in the bad neighborhoods. You never can think, you know, you talk about the glory that was Rome. There was a crummy, rotten neighborhood in Rome back in the days of the Caesars. There were some guys who never got near the Colosseum. You know, not only did they get never get near, they never once saw a Christian fed to the lions. They couldn't raise the admission scratch, you know. So they, they live way out in the, in the sticks out there and have the same problems we have, anybody has, whoever has been in the slum. So there was a slum to, uh, oh, and I'll award you a fig leggy here. A any of you XGIs, can you tell me the name of the slum, <laughs> the slum camp that was associated and attached to Fort Monmouth? 
and it was a genuine slum. It had it, it, the rutted roads. It, it, it had it had it had it had. Uh, it was really a terrible-looking place. You, you could, it, looked, it looked like a concentration camp. You know what you think? It had these battered old crummy barracks and torn tents, and it had mud up to your ears, and, and it had ruts and snow and crud, and, and, and it had a, a, an entire complement of angry people because they could see over the horizon this beautiful Fort Monmouth. See, that's what makes you mad about living in a slum, generally, is you can see the other stuff. If there was nothing else but a slum, you wouldn't know, you know? But but we would come out of this crummy, this awful place. We would come out, and we'd get in the bus, and we would be in the bus with the same guys who have just left the service club. Well-fed, warm, happy-looking guys with, with the sound of piano music still echoing in their ears, you know, and you could see the little powder from the donuts with the USO girls down at the PX and all that at, at Monmouth. And what did we get on there? Every one of us would sit there, and we'd smell vaguely like kerosene smoke. You know, we sit there. We were from the slum. Well, one day, one day, I'm I'm in this in this outfit, you see, and it's a, a totally, totally a hellish outfit, completely, and it's it's bitter cold. You know how bitter it can get on the Jersey Shore? Whew, wow. I mean, really, that kind where the wind screams off the ocean, and it's it's moist, and it's it's uh, it really is a you know that kind of uh, always on the verge of a hurricane kind of thing, and the temperatures hovering around five above and about eight above. And I am living in a tent with four other guys, and they have not provided us with blankets. And that we are we are sleeping on we are sleeping on these these four cots in a in a square around this little tiny stove about the size of a bowling ball, which we had to keep going. And, and here we are down on the ground. There, all four of us, all the time, throwing candy wrappers in there, trying to keep warm. And and our cots were were, were nothing but but wire uh, wire mesh screens. We did not have mattresses, so we had laid out our barracks bags on these on these uh, on the top of these uh, yeah on the top of these cots. We got the barrack bags on the top, and we had put things like oh my I get my gas mask was my pillow, and I'm lying and we would sleep every night fully dressed in our clothes uh, totally, and we would put our our raincoats our ponchos. Uh, we would put our overcoats, everything on top of us to try to keep warm. And the snow is drifting in through the holes in the roof. And we are lying there in this bitter, fantastic cold and, and wondering what the hell it's all about. You know, the wind is screaming. And off in the distance, we could see the glowing, warm lights of Fort Monmouth. And we would hear these guys in the bus talking about what a rotten place it was. Which is always what bugs you, you know. So we're lying there one day, all four of us are, you know, and we've got one of the guys is down on his knees and he's feeding baby Ruth wrappers, which he has gotten from the back of the PX into our little stove, you know, and he's, he's blowing it. He's got his hands in the fire there. And, and I'm, I'm, we couldn't even get out of bed. We didn't do anything all day long. We'd, we'd huddle in there trying to keep warm and they never came for us. And we were waiting for us. We had been told to stay in there till they came. They would come for us. And so they would every every three or four hours they would take us out and we would go over to this place and eat fat back. Uh, they had some kind of uh, they had some kind of pork that they would give us and it would come and it was uh, beans are all over you know they would throw this at us and we would be hurled back into this 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 hole and we would sit there and wait for them to call. Well, one day they called and you know you get so that you you hope that the call comes. I'm sure that guys, even in the death cell, eventually are hired. They cannot be away from to come. You know, oh, wow, you know. So, we're, boy, the wind is screaming, and we would lie in bed. Can you imagine lying in bed, and you're lying there, and you can feel you're getting heavier as you lie there because the snow is piling up on you. And you get so you like that because the snow keeps you warm, you know. 
You get so that you kind of like snow on you. So we're lying there. And once in a while, you hear the muffled curses of somebody is blowing his top in the next bunk. Oh, yeah, you'd hear this. Next door, I heard one guy jump up and say, Ain't going to keep me here no more. Damn it. And Donnie went. And you heard a lot of running. And you heard a couple of shots. And you heard a guy yelling, giving a password. Never heard any more about him. That was all we heard that night. We're all like, you know, there, I'm going to be next. I'm going to be next. Holy smokes, you know. Wind is blowing. Well, one bright morning after about one month of this fantastic life, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's so, so peculiar to, to, to explain it because they never gave us a pass to go out or anything. We had to stay there because we were needed. They said, any minute now, you are going to be called. Well, we were finally called. A crack of dawn, it is now 5.30, and a guy has got his head stuck into the darkness there, and he's blowing a whistle. And I, he's calling out the names. He says, Shepard! I say, yeah, 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 yeah. And he says, oh, what's on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, all right, you four guys, come on on a double. Let's go. This is it. Whoa, out we go. Oh, boy, we're saved. We run out. We, we're standing there. And he says, all right, you guys, get ready in the truck. Let's go into the truck. And we go off over the horizon. The temperature is like 20 below zero, but we're saved. We are saved. Oh, boy, are we glad. You know, holy smokes. Saved, saved, saved. We drive through the darkness. Darkness further and further and further. And then the truck. He slams on the brakes and he gets out. And you see a couple of forms in the darkness out there waiting for us. And, and there's always that inevitable voice of the vague southerner who's always in charge. He said, oh, hey, got them four guys in there, Charlie? Yeah, all right, come here, you four guys. Line up over here. All right, you four guys, uh, here's your equipment. And he hands each of us a little tiny shovel. All four of us have a little shovel and a little pick. And we see in the darkness, just beginning to show in the dawn's early light, we see thousands and thousands and thousands of old tents. You know the kind of tents that you see in the movies where it shows, you know, the great long lines of tents where it says Camp Kilmer or something? These tents had not been used for two years. And he says, All right, what I want you guys to do, I want you to start on this first row. I want you guys to get in there, and I want each one of you guys to pick out a tent, and I want you to clean out the stoves, the old ashes. I want you to clean out the pipes. And I want you to dig out all the ashes and the soot of each one of these, and you guys are not going to get out of this detail until every last one of these tents is clean. There were 25,000 tents. The temperature stood at about five below zero, and the four of us, each with his shovel and his little pick, began to work. By noon that day, my mind was a thousand miles away and was working its own beat. And the other four guys on their knees were sobbing and moving through a darkening horizon. Endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. I kept that up for three weeks and then never went back. I just left one morning out of my tent, walked over to the PX and just sat there for about three days. And I don't know what ever happened to those other three guys. As far as I know, they're still out there in the darkness, endlessly pushing that rock up to the top of the hill and then it slides back down again up to the top and down again it goes a condition of servitude is multiple